Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Liz Chi about her new book, Mao's Bestiary, Medicinal Animals in Modern China, published by Duke University of Press. Liz Chi is research fellow at the Asia Research Institute and lecturer at Tembusu College, both at the National University of Singapore. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we start, Liz, would you tell us something about yourself, uh, your research background, and how you developed an interest in medicinal animals? Right. I have joined a PhD with the National University of Singapore and Edinburgh University to do um, Chinese medicine. Um, and I graduated in 2015, um, and, and I'm a historian of Chinese medicine, but particularly focusing on animal parts and tissues. Um, my interest in medicinal animals began in 2009 when I newly joined a local animal activist group in Singapore, and I had a chance in December 2009 to travel up to Bolton City, which is up north in Laos, and I saw with my own eyes a bear farm. And um, But even then, in 2006, I remember uh, watching a documentary by um, Robinson. Her name is um, Jin... Jill Robinson, and I decided that I was so moved by the her work, and also then she already introduced to me the, the state of the bears uh, in such condition, and 2009 was just a trigger, and I decided that, you know, I would, I would just do my PhD and to figure out what all this is about. Wow, well, that's really interesting, because it sounds like you come to it with a, a, a passion yes. as well. Yes, it did. Yeah, I was really passionate about the topic, and um, basically 2011, 
Um, I started the PhD program and the book came out in 2021. So it's, uh, I, I really put 10 years of my life into this, but I didn't feel um, I didn't feel exhausted. In fact, I was really invigorated, and I'm glad. Um, I'm glad I had this uh, chance, this opportunity, and I think that, and I'll, I'll be grateful for this for to be given this opportunity. It's fascinating, and I, I think it's really important. It's very timely, of course, because of, and we'll get to this later. Uh, you know, COVID and even renewed interest in using as you say, the products from bear farming, possibly for COVID treatment. And also, um, I, I would just speaking as someone who studied Chinese medicine, I think that my colleagues would be really, really interested to know about this as well. Anybody in the West who has studied Chinese medicine uh, and learns about these herbal formulas containing animal parts, which you really uh, bring to light so much. It's, uh, so let me start with a question about Chinese medicine. I know many people would think of Chinese medicine as something based on ancient tradition going back thousands of years. And I would guess that the use of animal parts would particularly fall under that perception. But you argue in the book that the market for animal-based drugs is not just based on tradition, but in fact was propelled by diverse forces from the beginning of Mao's communist revolution. And my question is, I wonder what your thesis contributes to our understanding of Chinese medicine. How does it fit into the modern world as a health practice for people inside and outside of China? Well, Chinese medicine is a very diverse set of practices and it includes, for instance, acupuncture, mozibotion, herbal remedies, and of course the use of animal parts and tissues. And it's always evolving. And the term traditional is misinterpreted as changing. And one change that I document is the increased use of animals over time, not just more and more species, but more parts and for more purposes. And I call this process fauna medicalization. It's complicit um, in the illegal animal trade which is endangering many species. And there's nothing traditional about using parts of jaguars, for instance, as they are native to South America and not China. So my point really is that Chinese medicine is an evolving practice. And because of that, it can also evolve away from the use of animal parts, just as it's evolved into the greater use in the Mao period. And many contemporary practitioners and consumers today use Chinese herbal treatments without animals. I think that's a fascinating point. Uh, yes, that about how Chinese medicine has evolved. And a book that you cite by Mei John, Otherworldly, you know, argues that um, that way that Chinese medicine has not only been incorporated, but but anyway, just to make it brief, I'll say evolved over time and so that we could actually move away from that is a, a great point. And you say also for people in China, so for people um, in China and let's say in Singapore, is there a, a big movement, a strong movement to use away, to move away from using animal parts? 
I think it's increasingly so in Singapore, uh, especially in the um, 19, uh, especially in the early 2000s when uh, there was there was this group um, that came out founded by a uh, a young guy who was really passionate about uh, animal animals and he's currently one of the MPs in the, member of the parliament in Singapore so he founded that and he was uh, he actively campaigned against um, many animal abuse and and bad bad farming being one of them so and i think singaporeans especially the younger generation are getting more and more sensitized to uh, animal to animal rights issues and not just that but uh, we have for instance um, um, medicinal shop owners that are selling less and less of this uh, rare animal parts of tissues and if you talk about besides animal parts if you talk about other animal tissues like shark's fin restaurants are also climbing uh, are also um, stopping selling shark's fin soup which is basically a prized uh, delicacy in Singapore back in the 1970s and 1980s China and in China there is an increasing awareness among the younger generation of animal, uh, animal rights because as they grow affluent there's this irony that while there is this um, population there's this group uh, within the Chinese population that demands for exotic wild uh, wild meat as a as a as a status symbol, we do have actually alongside this group a a, a growing uh, a generation of the younger Chinese who actually because they they are more exposed than uh, than the older generation Chinese, they are more aware of uh, animal rights, animal animal protection. Uh, I want to ask you something specific now about how. It- in, in chapter two, you analyze something that I hadn't even known existed, which is the special relationship between the Soviet Union and China in developing animal-based drugs, particularly around the 1950s, I think. And one striking example you use is the development of something called pantocrine from deer antler. And deer antler had been used traditionally in Chinese medicine. Uh, so my question is, uh, would you explain to the listeners how pantocrine development illustrates that complex relationship between China and the USSR? Uh, and just one more follow-up is, what is its legacy today in the animal products marketplace? Uh, indeed, and one surprising thing that I found while conducting my fieldwork was the influence of Soviet medicine on Chinese medicine, which also modifies the idea that Chinese medicine is all about tradition. Uh, Deer traditionally uh, was used in Chinese medicine, of course, particularly the antler. But deer farming on a large scale began in Siberia and it moved to China. And this led to the commodification of many more parts of the deer. And one Soviet innovation was an extract of deer antler called pentocrine, which then began to be made in China. It's still widely marketed in um, in the countries of the former Soviet bloc, particularly Vietnam. Um, and Soviet medicine actually overlapped and interacted with Chinese medicine 
quite a lot. They both shared an interest in animal-based drugs through uh, organotherapy, which is the human injections of the animal hormone. And chicken blood therapy, actually, in uh, which I wrote in one of my chapters, was inspired partly by Soviet experiments with the animal tissues. Wow. And would you say something more about chicken blood therapy? Because that was really kind of bizarre. Um, it, it didn't seem to have a lot of um, research-based efficacy, let's say, and yet it was wildly popular for a while. Yes, um, chicken blood therapy was a fascinating story even for myself. Um, it, um, it actually began uh, when a guy named, by uh, the surname of Yu, uh, by the surname of Yu, uh, decided to try injecting chicken blood into himself and he felt invigorated, so invigorated that then he declared this to be a miracle um, drug, for lack of a better word. And um, and also, and then, um, and the crazy thing is, that, uh, it, it just picked up, it, it got picked up and, and it went, it, it, um, it spread throughout most of China. I knew of a Chinese historian who, uh, who actually collected similar documents and also lived through that time. And he, uh, he agreed with me that it was, uh, it was, it actually, uh, it was the trend back in the Cultural Revolution and people would inject themselves with chicken blood, though he himself didn't do it uh, because there was a, a group of Chinese population then that didn't believe and was scared of injecting raw chicken blood into their body because it did come with side effects and there were even reports of death. But putting that in the context of the time, because... Um, um, uh, there, there, there were so many experimentations uh, yeah, with 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 medicinals, whether it's uh, herbs or animals, and also there was a lack during the Cultural Revolution of uh, medicinal resources that people. It was uh, if I if I put myself into the shoes of the Chinese back in the time, I I feel that you know people were also driven to desperation, and so would try anything, which also then explained for even more parts of animals that were being used subsequently, like even goose blood, and then in the 90s, bear ball. So, um, Liz, something I'm wondering, because I know during the, um, a lot of Mao's era, especially in the beginning, it was the, the rural areas of China were really, really underserved by medicine, whereas the urban areas tended to have big centers of biomedicine, hospitals, and, and such. So, was it in the rural areas that people were sort of searching for these desperate remedies with animals? Um, well, it happened in the cities too, according to what I know. Yeah. So um, maybe, um, but uh, but uh, some things, things that I didn't uh, write in the book because they were non-animal related. Um, but actually, the time the, during that time, there was a lot of uh, experimentation with different uh, different. There were uh, many medical movements. For instance, uh, 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 there was this movement, uh, just like Qigong, there was this movement to 
uh, they believe the people then believe that if they shake their hands a couple times and do some hand movement, they 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 get healthier and get better. So, uh, so chicken blood was one of the many many movements that was happening, not just in the rural area but in the city themselves, which I didn't I couldn't really include into my book because I had to stay focused on animal blood and tissues. Mm. Uh, that's very interesting and. Was there much research done on this chicken blood therapy? Um, research as in uh, back that time, that what, what do you mean there were uh, scientific research to prove the efficacy of Yeah, chicken like blood? clinical studies. Oh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, uh, if I'm not wrong, um, my, uh, my chapter, in that chapter with chicken blood therapy, there were some doctors who refrained from using, from giving... Uh, chicken blood therapy and I feel that if doctors actually uh, prescribe chicken blood therapy some of them uh, if not all of them or most of them did it because uh, during the cultural revolution the, it was the rate guards that called the shots and and there was it was uh, it was really very emotional the whole movement was more emotional emotion driven than really science or driven by science or logic huh. And when you say emotionally driven, would that to do with the, the cultural revolution and um, it, like revolutionary fervor? Yes, yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. Wow. And you mentioned some uh, unwanted side effects. What were those? Um, I, uh, um, there were seizures um, and also there were fainting. People fainted and also the worst case scenario was there was a couple of deaths. That's why because of that, um, uh, very uh, after I think after a year or so of the, the fever just subsided. So seizures, um, fainting, and death. It sounds it sounds pretty bad. Um, and and what about pantocrine and deer antler? As far as I know, from my experience in Chinese medicine in the U.S., deer antler is pretty popular, popularly dis- prescribed by Chinese medicine practitioners for things like, uh, you know, low libido or erectile dysfunction in men. Is that still widely used in other places? Um, I I know that definitely in Russia, there are are, uh, such liquids, uh, there are such drugs being prescribed, pantocrine is still being prescribed, and in Vietnam especially. Um, in Singapore, not so much. It's not common to see them on the shelves. And, um, but, we, but it is very common, uh, however, to, to, to eat deer antelope, to, to, um, if, not the, if not pantocrine itself, it's very common, especially in Korea and in China and also in, in countries uh, in the East and Southeast Asia where, uh, where, it's particular, where there's winter. But if not, sorry, the Southeast Asia does not have winter, but in the East, like Japan and Korea, they, there is the custom to actually eat deer antler to keep themselves warm. Because uh, deer antler is believed to have a warming effect, and it is not just about boosting the, the, the man's fertility, uh, the woman also eat deer antler to keep themselves warm. Yeah, I see that makes sense, as it would be, it would be classified as a, a young tonifier. Um, and so warming and yeah. And Hong Kong sells a lot of the uh, deer antler. So that kind of you know 
brings up the issue of animal farming. And, and in chapter three, you really focus on animal farming. And it seems to me there's a sort of a vicious cycle that you describe of the increased farming leading to a need for increased efficiency, which means you're raising these animals, so you've got to learn, find new ways to use all the parts of the animal. And then that leads to more demand for those products as you create new products. And I wonder, to what extent did use of those new products that were invented persist? Do we still use them? Did they die out like chicken blood therapy? Oh, no, in fact, no, they, they have been growing animal farming. So what happened is I argue that medicinal animal farming began in the greatly forward, partly because of drug shortages, but also partly for foreign revenue. They want to farm these animals and to export them out to, uh, to countries, especially in Southeast Asia with a large uh, Chinese community. And um, so, and it's, Really, many of these overseas Chinese that who bought products like the mask and deer pass, though mask is also being imported to France for perfume making, hmm. and uh, but this demand was um, was also driven as much by quota as the markets themselves, and the farming created national markets for what may have been local practices. Some animals never widely that were never widely used as medicine were newly promoted as having medicinal properties through this farming, like seahorses and starfish. And farming created the pressure to use whole animals, even though some classical recipes only called for a certain parts to be used, like uh, the toke geckos, which were really originally farmed for their tails, which are a renewable resource because they fall off without you know being killed. But now in markets they sell the whole toke geckos on sticks and and I can I always see them in Chinatown in Singapore and also uh, in China the the medicinal well, and that makes me recall in my um, Chinese medicine classes, in my education, we were taught to use geckos, whole gecko, a male and a female together, because that works better, supposedly, for respiratory problems. And you would boil the whole, I recall, you know, decoct the, the whole male and female gecko together for respiratory issues. So it's my point is it really persists because we were taught this in all earnestness, as you know this is a this is the best thing to do for this kind it's, of condition. Oh, as it is, and in fact, there are even farming of uh, of uh, uh, of tigers. So we have tiger farms in the north in China too. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, this uh, tiger farms never existed in. Uh, the Cultural Revolution or the, the Great Default Movement, but um, I think it's because it's getting rarer. Tigers are getting rarer, not just in, uh, in, in, uh, in the world. So um, they decided in China to set up farm, uh, tiger farms to kind of sustain the supply, to continue the supply. I, I know it would, tiger bone was used in Chinese medicine. Is there some other part of the tiger they use? Well, um, right now it's been, 
right now they have gone to South uh, Africa and uses the uh, the cat species that are never considered were never considered medicinal in in the Chinese pharmacopoeia like the jaguars. Uh, so and also because um, China has is extended its its, uh, its influence in in Africa so much that there are so many Chinese workers and that that they they do uh, they created the demand for for South African species. And in fact this is this trend going on under the Belt Road Initiative where um, where the the government the Chinese government is getting interested in uh, in the medicine, the local mediciners, the native mediciners, and incorporate them into uh, into Chinese pharmacopoeia as part of Chinese medicine. Oh, that's really interesting because I think one thing you mentioned about the link with the Soviet Union is they had a lot of the same fauna because they had similar, uh, you know, climate. But this sounds like it's introducing completely different species. Yes, it is. Uh, though in the Cultural Revolution, there's, um, they were trying to substitute um, a tiger bone with um, dog bone. Mm, to, um, but now they have, they, but now it's a different situation. They are going outside of China and finding replacements uh, using a wild species the wild species of the, the country, of the home country, and which is, um, and I, as a, which I feel it's, it's something that we, it calls for attention and, and, and concern. It seems like another kind of resource exploitation. Yes, I, yes, yeah. Uh, particularly, and you, you mentioned that the Great Leap Forward uh, is when they started they were uh, farming animals to export, right, for money. Was that right? So there's this whole idea of commodification and just pushing the economy as rather than uh, a, a great respect and honoring of ancient tradition, but how can we grow the economy or expand the economy and it sounds as if that's been going on in different ways ever since, ever since the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. Oh yes, and uh, this is something that we uh, uh, we don't we know very little about. Like uh, that, we we all, we thought you always thought about the Mao period as a very closed economy, but that's not the case according to um, to my uh, my. Uh, my research in China and the documents that I found, you know, Mao, Chairman Mao was really into um, industrializing and was really into nation building. Uh, and so he knew that uh, one way, to him, one way to get the foreign revenue for him to acquire all the materials and resources to build China is, uh, is to export, is to export. And, uh, and animal medicines is one of them because especially the luxury animal parts and like ginseng, if uh, gin, uh, ginseng and deer antler. So with this actually, uh, this need for, for, for foreign revenue actually uh, fewer Fewer that uh, fewer the uh, the growth of the animal farming industry in China, and it still continues through the Mao period into the Deng Xiaoping period and to this day, because um, there are so many books on 
animal farming and teaching farmers how to farm, even published to this day. Were those books you found in your research? Because before we started, we were chatting a bit, and you mentioned that you had found all these documents, and I, I haven't, not that I've looked into it deeply myself, but I never heard about these books about animal farming. Where did you discover, and what did you discover, uh, as far as documents in your research? Um, well, I started in Guangzhou, which is in South China, South China, and I went to the Sun Yat-sen Library. For, of course, uh, I'm I'm really I, I started with the Guangzhou. University of Traditional Chinese Medicine, but before the library was open to, to me, uh, because there is a special library in uh, in one uh, department. Uh, until I was given access to the library, I went to the public libraries like the Sun Yat-sen Library. So I managed to find um, very contemporary books on farming. Nothing of the Cultural Revolution, nothing of the Great Leap Forward. So when eventually um, the director of the Institute of the Chinese University of TCM opened and gave me access to the library, um, it was uh, amazing and it was fascinating when I could trace farming, contemporary farming in China all the way back to the Mao period. So the Chinese medicine uh, universities had the, these document, these books and documents in their libraries. Yes, but it was seldom used. So, uh, so he didn't think I would need them. In fact, he didn't think they were actually useful to me. But he opened up the library to me anyway. Uh, so, but it turned out to be a whole treasure. It was turned out to be a whole treasure trove. Yeah. Um. Have you presented your research to them at all? Has have you presented it in China? Uh, yes, I did. I presented to the uh, to the director who opened up uh, the library to me, and I presented to uh, uh, to CAS, the Chinese Academy of Science in Beijing, and I presented in Tianjin in uh, Tianjin uh, in Tianjin um, in a very famous university in Tianjin. And how did they receive it? Uh, very mixed, very mixed. I have, um, uh, well, it's it's actually well known in academia that Chinese academics are forbidden to write about anything about the Mao period. So, um, but I have some ac Chinese academics who who are still open. To uh, my argument, but um, but but yet again, it is in in this university in Tianjin where I got the most adverse reaction from the professor who invited me. Um, he hollered at me. Uh, he hollered at me at the very end when I ended my uh, when I ended my my presentation. <laughs> so that was the extreme. That was the most extreme. Uh, and drastic uh, reaction that I got, but otherwise they they were quite um, friendly and they were quite open. Though uh, questions asked was really the questions asked was really about uh, drawing me back to ancient China because a lot of their training is in ancient China, so they wouldn't want to engage with me on Mao period history. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because that sort of, you know, that goes back to the whole thing about people believe that this um, medicinal animal use or faunal medicalization is based on very ancient tradition that we study in the yes. ancient. Yes, and yes, and that's, you're right, you're right. They always tell me that, oh, it's nothing new because we already have farming and in the Han period, we only have farming in the Song period. You should go back to our to Dao's period. But uh, what I'm really looking at in my book is the the, the uh, mass production and uh, mass farming. Yeah, and I think uh, if I remember the name right, so the the earliest book of of Chinese medicine pharmacopoeia was the I, I may pronounce this poorly Shennong Ben Cao. Uh, yes. But rather than was, yeah. yeah, and I, but and uh, you mentioned in the book too that there was a much smaller number of medicinal animals listed there. Yes, yes. Uh, well, Shenlong uh, Chang is not earlier. I was referring to the Bantao um, Gangmu of the. All right. Yeah. Bantao uh, Gangmu, and there were only about four hundred animal parts and tissues listed. But um, but then you know, but but they keep increasing to thousands. And by now, there are just so many. It's more than 400. Yeah, about 2,000. Right now, there are 2,000. Yeah, um, which suggests that uh, there's been a lot, a lot of change in the intervening years. It, one thing I'm really interested in in the book is this relationship between science and follow medicalization. And it, this emerges throughout the book. And just some things that are related, the what we could call the scientization of Chinese medicine throughout the 20th century, uh, the influence of the Soviet theories like organotherapy. And then later, during the, the Mao period, the rejection of science, or at least the rejection of science as, as practiced by professional scientists, um, all of these things played a part in popularizing this use of animal-based products. Um, and I, I'm wondering what's what's the relationship between science and medical fauna, <laughs> medical faunal medicalization now? Mm. Well, um, faunal medicalization had many drivers, and one was the rise of pharmaceutical research in the communist period. Um, this wasn't the major one, but uh, but they contributed to it too. The word scientization was commonly used in this period to describe all practical innovations and even the adaptation of food medicine was considered scientization. But it's also true that uh, elite physicians and labs started experimenting with, with all sorts of animals mentioned in ancient texts and some that had never been mentioned, for example, goose blood was seriously experimented with as a cure for cancer. Um, even Western-trained doctors experimented with folk remedies involving animals because it was uh, politically correct to learn from peasants. Um, today, there is still an aura of scientific research around many animal drugs like bear balm, um, but a very little animal-based medicine has gone through the type of clinical trials used to certify biomedical drugs, which is why a lot of it is sold as health supplements or even cosmetics. It can not be sold as drugs, not in China. Oh, that's very interesting. And I think we have that in the U.S. too, that 
the, the things that are marketed as supplements are not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Yes, yes, and that's one way to get around uh, this problem. And that also kind of gets into uh, a, a shift anyway, which is this change in emphasis from, uh, let's say, peasants who are desperate for possibly life-saving treatments to people who are wealthier populations who are interested in wellness and um, just mind-body wellness. And even this idea of primary care has shifted from primary care, which will prevent you from dying, you know, things like uh, basic hygiene, to, uh, again, this sort of um, wellness-enhancing behavior. So what what kinds of, um, I think you even mentioned that the farming of bears, that, that the bear bile is now used as something that is a, a wellness supplement. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, well, health supplement is really a huge unregulated category that allows all sorts of dubious substances to be marketed as quasi-medicine. And Bebel does fall into this category. And it has been marketed as tea and even toothpaste and even um, like a hangover drug. It's a, uh, sorry, a hangover cure. Um, and um, well, uh, in my introduction, I mentioned um, besides going to Bolton City and having, uh, I also visited uh, a uh, a bear operation and um, the, the, the owner uh, I believe he looks uh, in his 60s he he, he um, I had to down a raw bowl but before that he 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 told me about how every morning he and his son has to drink uh, this shot glass of bowl which keeps them healthy and that's why he kept talking about how the reason why he's so healthy to this day is because of this um is this daily daily drink of raw bear bowl what was your experience drinking it uh it's it's really not a good experience it's it's uh it's um it's um it's tangy but it's it's way tangy and and it actually is quite revolting when it go, when it went down uh, into my stomach. But I had to down. I, I basically actually drank only a quarter of it, and I had to stop. Um, and I thought I told him that oh, I want to take a walk. And it was when I walked around the showcase that he was selling also bear tea, and he was also selling uh, 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 different kinds of wine uh, made from deer penis. Um, so you talk about health supplements, yes, animals. Uh, besides the bowl, a bear bowl, um, there are various kinds of animals that you know the, this uh, this Chinese pharmaceutical owners are, are using and and, and touting and selling as health supplements. So then, but then he, before I left, he made me finish up the the, the rest of the bear bowl because he said it really costs a lot. Uh, I can't remember the price, but he said this nobody. Uh, not many people have the opportunity to drink this, so you better finish this up. Uh, so you, you sacrificed for the sake of your research. And but this is the actual bile that comes from the bear's gallbladders, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really raw, untreated. I believe it was untreated. So how, how does the idea come that that will be healthy 
for you as a health supplement? It was not, uh, and uh, when uh, it was never, it never came to me as healthy because, uh, as an animal, as someone who actually was uh, was doing um, really, you know, in an NGO working and fighting for animal rights, and so I had an opportunity to meet Joe Robinson, um, founder of Animal Asia Foundation, and and there was some uh, in, and I went to Chengdu. I. Uh, sometime in the early 2000s where she had a conference and and they were showing you know like they, they were showing one aspect uh they were telling stories of basically people who fall sick from drinking bebao because the bebao already was adulterated and and the fact that the 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 uh the, the bears were sick in themselves and the fact that the the, the wound um, where they, they open up, the wound where they, you know, from where they, they found, they, they drain, they collect the bulb was always open. Already the bear was themselves were infected. And, and, and so drinking them, um, um, so Joe Robinson was showing stories of the, the patients, of Chinese patients who, who got sick from drinking all this bulb. So, uh, so, so, but Chinese pharmaceutical owners would never tell that story. Their job was to sell and and also create various different remedies, uh, stories of cure, different ver- different kind of cures for this for this bear. And in fact, uh, re- uh, in fact, because uh, uh, you know, uh, pick, uh, in in the recent COVID nineteen pandemic, Babel again has been sold as a cure for COVID. And whose idea was that? Did you get a sense? Was that being pushed by the bear bile industry, the bear farming industry? I, I, I believe that's the case because a lot of the bear, uh, well, uh, to put this into context, the reason why bear farms grew and, and grew in China was really in the 80s, the Chinese government wanted uh wanted to help the impoverished peasants. So they allowed the peasants a site, uh, something to do on the side. And many turned to bear farming. And and when the Chinese became affluent and they were made able to sell them as a prized drug to the rich Chinese. And the Chinese peasants actually grew, uh, became wealthy and and, and then they built uh, operations and, and bear bile operations and they got bigger and we also have to understand that there's a gifting economy in China mm. in China where uh, in really to 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 gain uh, to, to get favors from the rich people you have to present gifts and Beba was presented as a very expensive and a very presentable gift to uh, to influential and powerful Chinese so um, not so much to drink it, you know. In fact, Joe Robinson said that they were really, uh, they were most of them were being put on shelves and not so much to be consumed. Hmm. Do you think the consumers know what the conditions are like on the bear farms? Because the way you described it was quite horrific, as how the bears are kept and and you said they were like living vats of of bile. Yeah, I don't think they. I don't think the consumers knew. I think it's, it's really hidden. Uh, just like we don't know how chickens are slaughtered, the slaughterhouses are are, uh, this, uh, are are just hidden from us. So that's why we can still go and get our meat. 
Um, I think that's the same. I think if I use the same logic to explain Bebel, I don't think consumers of buyers and consumers of the bear of Bebel knew about what happened in the farm. You mentioned COVID, and I know this is probably a question you get asked a lot because you actually researched and wrote the book you said over the last 10 years. So it was before the COVID era. Uh, but as this era continues seemingly indefinitely, um, I can't help but wonder about the dynamic between, on the one hand, the increased recognition of the dangers of bringing wild animals into the marketplace because you could have the spread of zoonotic diseases. But on the other hand, the desperate search for novel COVID cures almost like, you know, desperate search of people uh, by using chicken blood in the 1950s. Well, um, the pandemic has already had an effect. Um, um, well, the Chinese government certainly has removed pangolins from the Chinese pharmacopoeia, and well, yeah, they removed pangolins, and um, when they when it was proposed that the pangolins were possible hosts for the coronavirus, and they have shut down a lot of the wild animal farming, but uh, but then there is a there is a catch to all this because the farms that they closed, um, they were they were farming the animals for food and not so much for uh, for medicine. So uh, so farm farmers who actually farm. Uh, the animals strictly for medicine for medicine purposes, especially the bear farmers, are able to stay. And this is something, you know, that that shows that you know that something more has to be done because the food medicine category in Chinese medicine is is blurred. Uh, is really blurred, but yet again, in terms of legislation, the government has made it so clear cut that you know uh, all those animals farmed for food has to be has to be banned uh, and closed down, but not for medicine. But the line has never been that clear cut in the context of Chinese medicine and also Chinese food. Yes, and there's that um, that matter in Chinese medicine too. If there is a a lot of herbs and animal products that are used as as food and food as medicine. Um, and then you move into the more medicinal drug sort of categories, but I'm probably not explaining this very well, but things that you would eat to stay healthy, um, not just fruits and vegetables are healthy for you, but this particular product has this particular properties that will keep you healthy. Yeah. And what's your sense, Liz, of where this is going? Because it sounds like, on the one hand, there's this increasing international marketplace and this increasing international commodification of animal parts for health purposes, and particularly as the wellness industry kind of spreads as wealth spreads around the world. Um, but also there's a growing awareness among people who are or vegans, or they don't want to use other animal products, and they believe in animal rights. Where, where do you think? Which? How do you think the balance is? Um, well, to be honest, Rachel, I'm really not sure because uh, uh, it is still a big industry. Whether it's the illegal wildlife trade or the Chinese medicine, it's a big industry, and I don't. I and I, I doubt if. Uh, 
if either would want to let go because you know the animals are dying and because of COVID. Um, um, yeah, because uh, I I, re- I remember reading some uh, articles by uh, by journalists that says that you know the the the, the poaching poaching is still being carried out this way. Despite the pandemic, which has been ongoing for, we are coming into what our third year. Yeah, so um, I I really have no idea, but um, but I do just like but you know looking at Rachel Carson and her second string, she was so she was successful. She was considered successful in that the American government has banned DDT, and uh, I can only hope that you know. Maybe one day, um, you know, my, my book will have that influence in something. There will be major policy shift. I can only hope, cross my fingers. Yes, that would be a great thing to be able to have that kind of um, impact with your, your research. We've taken up a lot of your time, Liz, um, but I'm wondering if you would tell us before you go, what are you working on now or what's your next project? Oh, uh, last year I was uh, I was very busy writing a grant, which is a um, a very big grant, like uh, a, a little more than a million dollar, to continue my research. Uh, basically, looking really at the, uh, the the demand side of all these animal parts and tissues. My book Mouse Bestiary is about the supply, how the Chinese uh, government under Mao Zedong, under Chairman Mao created animal farming and created this uh, uh, true supply, created demand. And uh, looking forward, I, uh, I, I, I'm very keen to look at how uh, places in Southeast Asia and East Asia uh, back in the 1970s, uh, they created the demand for for this. How the demand began, what was uh, what was uh, spoken about, what was the discourse, and and what was happening in uh, the different actors that come together to create the demand uh, for 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 all these animal parts and tissues. Yeah, and only through understanding where we came from can we understand where we're going. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating book, uh, Mao's Bestiary, Medicinal Animals and Modern China by Duke University Press. And I think for anyone who has been interested in the history of medicine, Chinese medicine, animal rights, animal welfare, it's really something uh, that you would love to read. And Liz, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's, it's, You're welcome. Yeah, thank it's you a great for honor having to speak me. with you.